Thanks be to God. Good morning, friends. Good to see you here today. Thank you for those of you who uh, have been praying for me and, and uh, our family uh, regarding the, the passing of my dad into glory. Uh, as you know, most of you know at least, that I traveled back to Colorado Springs last week and um, had a very good time with the family and the Lord was glorified and my dad was honored and um, we were all encouraged. So it was a good time and thank you for praying. Um, getting there was a little bit sketchy. Uh, had to spend 14 hours in Rollins, Wyoming. Never a good idea uh, because the roads were closed, snowed in. So uh, I sat there waiting in my car, revving the engine, um, waiting to get out of there. But finally made it and uh, it was a worthwhile trip, so thank you. It is at uh, funerals or memorial services of loved ones or people you know um, or even at a God-honoring, Christ-glorifying service, like a memorial service, where the questions that I'm gonna ask you here in a minute come into pretty clear focus. I don't know about you, but when I attend a, a memorial service and start thinking about eternal things, things clear up for me a lot, which is why I enjoy memorial services, in fact, more than weddings. Uh, so, and I've told you that before, and some of you don't like that, but that's me. One of the most important, one of the most piercing, one of the most revealing questions that Jesus asked his disciples uh, as he was discipling them is found in Mark chapter 8, verse 29. It's also recorded in Matthew 16. But this is what Jesus asked his disciples. He said, who do you say that I am? Who do you think I am? He asked his disciples. Well, what a penetrating question that is. Not just for his disciples, but for us who are his disciples today. And I think that your answer to that question is the most important thing about you. Who is Jesus? Is Jesus a Jewish character of antiquity that we treat like any other historical figure? Or is there more to Jesus than that? Is he someone that should have personal daily influence or even more than influence, authority over us? Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? The answer to that question has massive implications. And your answer has implications for not just eternity, and I'll talk about that in a minute, but for now, here and now, today. We may dismiss the eternal implications part of that because we think that, you know, the next life isn't for quite some time. We have a long time to live. And I would challenge you to rethink your personal timetable, but that's for another sermon, right? What I want you to take away today from this sermon is the need to recognize the important role that Jesus must play in your daily life. We, we, we can't afford to keep him on the perimeter. We can't afford to say to ourselves or to people we love, you know, that's for weekends and small group night. 
There are implications in these verses in chapter 1 that you just heard read to you that we can't afford to miss. If Jesus is the king of God's kingdom and the solution to our chaos as Mark is presenting them here in this book, what difference does he make in our daily lives today? Does it make any difference how you live based on your opinion of who he is? Mark has demonstrated that Jesus is the promised king of God's kingdom here in this first chapter. He did this by recording his inauguration um, and his commissioning at the baptism and by showing his authority over Satan, over Satan's weapons of temptation and sin in Jesus' wilderness temptation here in this first chapter. And he, he, Mark demonstrates Jesus' authority um, over Satan's weapons and over Satan's focus. And what is Satan's focus again? We are Satan's focus. He wants to get you. He wants to undo you. He wants to cause you spiritual trouble. We are Satan's focus. Now here in verses 21 through 28, and I hope you have your Bibles open with me. In verses 21 through 28, Mark's going to show us definitively that Jesus' authority includes his authority over the spirit world. He's going to give us three areas here, his amazing teaching, his final judgment, and his authority over or power over the spirit world to demonstrate Jesus' comprehensive authority over all things, including our lives. So what are you going to do with Jesus? What would your answer to be, what would your answer be to this? Who do you say that I am? Do you believe that Jesus has authority? Most of us in the room, sure, he's God. But that's not the question I'm asking. I'm asking you, do you believe that he has authority over you personally? Over your decisions? Over your life? Is he in charge of you? If so, does your life as you are currently living it reflect that? belief. Surrender to Jesus' authority must move beyond the theoretical, beyond the rote Sunday school answers that we're prepared with. Jesus' authority over the details of our lives must be a daily practice if we're going to be consistent. In other words, if our claims of Jesus' authority over us are genuine, then we must surrender to his lordship on a daily, practical level. This affects how we treat our spouses. This affects how we treat our children, our neighbors, our coworkers. It affects how we spend our money. It affects what we think about in downtime. It affects what we watch on TV. It affects what we read. So we, we don't have the option here, if we say we believe that Jesus is God, that he is the king of God's kingdom, that he is the one who came to bring order out of chaos, we don't have the option of ignoring Jesus' teaching or the teaching of his apostles if we claim that he is Lord, if we claim that he has intrinsic authority over everything. Today, we're going to see how Mark describes the scope of Jesus' authority, the breadth of it. 
we will see Jesus moving deeper into enemy territory and taking on Satan's army on their turf. It's pretty impressive. Mark wants us to recognize the comprehensive nature of Jesus' authority. He wants us to more than just to recognize it, he wants us to feel it, experience it. Mark wants us convinced. He wants us to surrender. Ironically, in the early part of the Gospel of Mark here, the only ones who are sure of Jesus' identity are the demons. No one else is convinced. The religious leaders didn't believe him. They hated him. His own disciples weren't convinced. They weren't sure at this point. And, of course, the crowds were noncommittal. They just liked watching him do cool tricks, like you might go to a magician's show. But the demons knew exactly who he was. Isn't that ironic? Mark, Mark chapter 3, verse 11 says this, And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. <laughs> no one else was doing that <laughs> at this point in Jesus' ministry. The demons knew the Son of God well. He was there when they revolted against God in heaven before creation of mankind. He was there when Satan and his demons were thrown out of heaven for treason. So when they saw God, that is when the demons saw God, their creator, their judge, they cried out in horror. Oh no, it's the Son of God. In verse 24, do you see that? Look at verse 24 here in chapter 1. They ask, have you come to destroy us? In Luke 8:31, they begged not to be thrown into the abyss. In Mark chapter 5, verse 7, it says this, And crying out with a loud voice, he, the demon, said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. They knew exactly who they were dealing with. In our passage today, I think that your hearts will begin to ache on the edges from what you see unfolding here. The demons knew who he was but couldn't come to him for forgiveness. And the ones to whom Jesus offered forgiveness didn't believe him. The demons were terrified by Jesus while all along the crowds were amazed, astonished, entertained. The terrified ones in this story were unsavable. The amazed ones were unconvincible. Mark's objective here was to demonstrate that Jesus has authority over Satan and his demons, but Jesus' objective wasn't to show uh, the demons who's in charge by putting them in their place. They already knew that. They knew that the moment they were dismissed from heaven's glory. No, Jesus came to show the world, to show you and me, that he is more powerful than the one who has brought about worldwide chaos. That's why Mark is recording this. Jesus came to show that he is more powerful than the enemy of God, the enemy of all humanity. Jesus demonstrated his power and authority over everything evil to clearly re reveal that he can and does solve chaos, that he can and does rescue people like this demon-possessed man, like you and me today. Listen to how Paul said this in Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. 
He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. This is what God was doing in the first century. It's what he's doing today. Delivering captives from sin and darkness, from the kingdom of Satan, into the kingdom of his son, the kingdom of light. From chaos to order. Chaos to peace. Chaos to forgiveness. So are you someone or someone you know, still held captive in the domain of darkness? Every day, Jesus is taking people who have been wrecked by sin, who are being crushed by chaos, and freeing them, bringing order out of chaos and peace out of turmoil and forgiveness out of sin. This is what the king of God's kingdom is doing. It's what he's always done. This is the savior that Mark is presenting this promised one, this one who came to save us from our sin, to solve our chaos. Here in Mark chapter 1, verse 21 through 28, we're going to see Mark's ongoing display of Jesus' superiority over everything that could possibly undo us, could possibly cause us spiritual harm. And we know, of course, that the New Testament is full of affirmation of Jesus' supremacy. Back when we were preaching through the book of Hebrews, that was the main point, right? The supremacy of Christ in all things. This is what Mark is saying here. This is what Paul said in Colossians 2, 10. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. You have rule and authority, and then you have the head of all rule and authority, the person of Jesus Christ. Mark shows us here in this short passage, 21 to 28, Three ways in which Jesus demonstrated his power and authority over all things and three reasons why you should completely surrender to him this morning. Completely surrender to him. So when you leave today, Sun Valley Church, I don't want you asking the question, at least I hope your, your question isn't, does Jesus have authority over me? But this is what I hope your question will be. Have I surrendered to his authority? today, in this moment. Not does he have that authority, Mark will lay it out clearly that he does, but the question that you must leave with is, have I surrendered to him? All right, let's look at these three areas. First, authoritative teaching. Authoritative teaching. Look at verses 21 and 22. And they went into Capernaum, by the way, that's Capernaum, that's the village of Nahum. Nahum was from this place, right? And when they went into Capernaum, Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Authoritative teaching. One of the primary functions of the synagogue is or was the public reading and exposition of Old Testament scripture. That's what the synagogue was for. If you went to synagogue, you expected for someone to open the, book, the Bible, read an Old Testament passage and explain it to you. Scribes and teachers of the, of the Torah, same thing, scribes, they were teachers of the Torah, were normally the ones who taught the people in the synagogue 
In Jesus' day, they, there weren't copies of the Old Testament laying around people's houses. And so if they wanted scripture, they would go to the synagogue and hear it read and, and preached. Just similar to what we do here. We, of course, we have copies of scripture at home, but we come here to have it read and preached to us. This is what Paul was doing in the synagogues. When you read through Acts, it says on the Sabbath, he went to the synagogue. He was considered a visiting rabbi, and so they let him get up and speak. It was common, common practice. So when Jesus came here to the synagogue in Capernaum, that's exactly what took place. Oh, a visiting rabbi, please speak. So this is, this is a, a really just a record of the welcome that this synagogue gave Jesus because his reputation of a teacher, a prophet, a miracle worker had preceded him. Everyone in the room recognized that Jesus was a rabbi. They should, he should be able to teach. But when Jesus taught, it astonished them, I just read you. He simplified everything. It wasn't complicated. He opened the Old Testament and explained what it meant to everyday life. His explanations were clear, convicting, powerful, practical, freeing. This is why people were astonished and amazed. Jesus was simply communicating God's word with clarity and power. It made sense. Unlike the scribes, this was the first level of astonishment. The second level was similar, but it was more focused on the personal authority of Jesus. This guy, it seems like he knows what he's talking about. Could be the way to say it in the vernacular. He never referred to a different rabbi's teaching. He said, it is written, but I say to you. Remember that? Jesus' own testimony recorded in John chapter 5 through 9 and summarized in John 12 was that his authority came from God, the Father. And this is what he said to his disciples in, in Matthew 28, right before his ascension. All authority, all authority has been given to me. Jesus possessed all authority. He wasn't waiting on another rabbi to say, you have my authority. Most scribes were not official rabbis. And they did not have what the Jews called shmikah. I know that sounds weird, but it's just a word for inherent authority. Shmika. In Matthew chapter 21, verse 23, listen to what happens here. And when he, that is Jesus, entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? They were asking him, where did you get your shmika? You have no authority. I want to see the documents. Who said you could say these things? There was a standard, and Jesus was breaking it. Because the scribes didn't have the Shemekah, they couldn't introduce new interpretations or make legal judgments from the Torah. They couldn't say, this means this. I think this is the interpretation. No. You had better refer to a previous rabbi or you kept your mouth shut. That's how it went in these synagogues. All they could do was present varying opinions from previous rabbis. That was it. So by the first century, when Jesus came onto the scene, the scribes weren't really teaching the scriptures. 
they, they, as they were intended to be taught. They were focusing on complex theories of interpretation, obscure allegories, cutting-edge rabbinical insights, provocative interpretations from previous rabbis. Rabbi Bob said was the extent of their teaching. They were playing to the crowd. But Jesus spoke the truth with confidence that you would expect from a divine king. He didn't hem and haw, saying, I think, or it may be, or so-and-so said this, or so-and-so said that. No. Because of this, the people who were listening heard profound and powerful and practical teaching and were astonished, as we would be. We might be able to appreciate their astonishment a little bit more if Jesus were to be a guest preacher at Sun Valley Church, for example. He, he could take any contro, controversial subject or passage, whatever you don't understand, pick one, women's roles in the church. Controversy all over the place about that. Spiritual gifts. The church still disagreeing about that. Eschatology all over the place. Jesus would come in, after his teaching, you would understand everything perfectly, how it applies, and there'd be no confusion. You would sit there dumbfounded, or smart-founded, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> we would be astounded, right? You would be astonished. And by the way, the words astonished in this passage and amazed that we read in verse 26 have the same idea. And here it is, stunned silence. That's what the word means. They were stunned and they just sat there and I can't believe what I'm hearing. Kind of silence. On the way out to their Homes, as they were walking along, they, could probably, they were probably saying to each other, what just happened? Stunned silence. Okay, Sun Valley Church, what do you do with Jesus' teaching? It's recorded right in the book in front of you, in your lap. Is it like, eh? How do you react, respond, apply the powerful teaching of Jesus Christ found particularly in the four gospels but expounded on in all the epistles. Do you, do you follow his teaching? Do you submit to it do you, or do you ignore it? Or do you follow it until it gets uncomfortable? What do you do with Jesus' teaching? I like this part, don't like that part. By the way, Jesus doesn't offer a smorgasbord you get to choose, no. If it comes out of his mouth, it's law, right? Probably a bad choice of word. If it comes out of his mouth, it's, it's grace. Have you surrendered to that teaching? Or do you sit here still in judgment over that teaching? You decide if you're going to accept what Jesus says. You determine if it's applicable. You over Christ and his teaching? 
The second way in which Jesus demonstrated power and authority over all things, and the second reason that we should surrender to him, besides his authoritative teaching, is found here in the next few verses, authoritative judgment. Listen to these. And immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. Authoritative judgment. So this stunned silence that I was referring to earlier was immediately and shockingly interrupted by someone screaming loudly from the back of the auditorium, and it wasn't a crying baby. He was a full-grown man screaming at the top of his lungs. That's the word cried out means. Screaming. We've never had to deal with that at Sun Valley. I hope we never do. Although we have had people raise their hand and ask questions in the middle of my sermon. <laughs> which made me uncomfortable, but... I want to I uh, ask you to, to reconsider the word order here of verse 23. Unfortunately, the ESV has it how I just read it to you. But I think the word order is better reflected in other translations that you may have in your lap right now. But in verse 23 in the ESV it says, And immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out. How I think it should read is, And there was a man in the synagogue with an unclean spirit, and immediately he cried out immediately should be dropped to the, towards the end of the sentence, which can and should be done in the Greek language. Why is that important? Because after he heard the teaching of Jesus is when he cried out. After he heard the authoritative declaration of the Son of God, this man, who was possessed by a demon, recognized the identity of Christ and said, Oh, no! Timing is important, understanding this story. Mark records that a demon-possessed man cried out, and he used that word twice in this passage, cried out, in verse 23 and 26. Because of Jesus' teaching, this demon who, was possessed, who possessed a man was in the synagogue and he screamed violently with rage and terror. Now, in case you're wondering, and I hope you have been wondering, what in the world is a demon doing in a synagogue? Good question, right? Why is he even there? <laughs> you need to know that demons regularly hang out where false teaching is taking place, even today. You remember what Paul said to Timothy about this, right? In 1 Timothy 4.1, false teaching comes from demons. And unbelievably, this happens every day, particularly on Sundays, all across this planet. False teaching inspired by demonic activity. Demons are agents of Satan's sent to disrupt, to confuse, to lead people astray. Satan wants people confused. He wants people following false teaching. Why? So that they don't follow Christ. It's really simple. If I can get you believing this, you won't believe that. Read the screw tape letters. There is, in the vernacular, Satan's plan for, for God's people. Satan's thinking, if I can just mess them up, they won't follow Christ as they should. 
Paul calls Satan and his demons angels of light in 1 Timothy 4. He says they promote error and deceit, but it looks good on the outside. It, it, it pacifies human interests, makes me feel good about myself. I don't go to that church because every time they go there, they make me feel bad. You know that's not demonic activity. <laughs> if I go to church and I leave feeling good about myself, that's demonic activity. When Jesus was teaching that day in the synagogue in Capernaum, the demon that was there was exposed. Jesus' teaching exposed him. And this demon reacted to being in the presence of the Son of God with great fear and anger. Mark said, immediately upon Jesus' powerful teaching, this demon screamed. Demon possession and demon activity was rare but was recorded in the gospel accounts of Jesus' ministry. There is very little record of demon activity in the Old Testament. In fact, there's one, Genesis 6. No other demon activity besides Genesis 6 up until Matthew 1. And then after the end of the book of John, there's only two records, two recordings of demon activity, twice in Acts, none in the epistles. So you have this, beginning of time, the Gospels, this apex right on the ministry and life of Jesus of demon activity. Any guesses as to why? <laughs> what do you think was going on here? Satan knew that he was under attack by the Son of God. Satan knew that God had entered human history and he came to destroy the works of the devil, it says in 1 John chapter 5. And so he upped, he marshaled more and more opposition, demonic opposition to Jesus Christ. And so Satan recognized that his, his dominion of sin and chaos was under siege. In this story, the demons, did you notice, used two different names for Jesus? Did you see that? The first was Jesus of Nazareth. Every time you were, read the, the title, Jesus of Nazareth in the Gospels, it's always a derogatory reference because no one thought highly of Nazareth. This guy, Jesus, is from where? Nazareth? You remember Philip's question? What good thing could come out of Nazareth? Are you kidding me? No. Nazareth? No. And isn't this how the religious leaders who opposed Jesus tried to draw him down. This Jesus is from Nazareth. You shouldn't be listening to this bum. He's from Nazareth. Same, same strategy with this demon. Tried to shame Christ in front of everybody he was teaching. This Jesus is from Nazareth. And this is how, like I said, the religious leaders tried to mock Jesus. But this demon knew without a shadow of a doubt the true identity of Jesus and so he was terrified and followed up with the second title given to Jesus by the demon. What was it? You see it there? The Holy One of God. A little closer to reality, right? This demon was fully aware of Jesus' power and authority and identity. Every demon knew why Jesus was on the planet. First John 3, 8. I said 1 John 5 earlier, it's 1 John 3, 8. 
whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, and the devil has been sinning from the beginning, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And every devil knew it. Every demon was well aware. What they didn't know, and this is why they were so frightened when they encountered the Son of God, what they didn't know was when the final judgment would take place. Maybe it's now. Right? They were, they were terrified because of this. And they were terrified of the one who could pronounce that judgment. Authoritative judgment. In James chapter 2, verse 19, James said, You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe that. And what? Shudder. Frightened. You see, demons are very afraid of, Je of Jesus for good reason. Should we fear Jesus' judgment? Yes and no. Let me unpack that for you. Romans chapter 8 verse 1 tells us that for those who surrender to Jesus as Lord and Savior, there is now no condemnation, right? So are you in Christ? If you are, then you have no divine judgment to fear. There is now no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ, for those of us who have surrendered to his lordship. We have nothing to fear of God at all. All the reasons that we may fear, all the reasons that we deserve God's judgment, were fully taken care of back on Calvary, right? And so there's nothing left for us to fear if we're in Christ, if we've embraced him, surrendered to him. But if you are not in Christ, if you continue in your own sinful agenda, following the ways of this world, if you have never embraced Jesus Christ for all that he is and all that he has done, if you have not surrendered to him, then you have much to fear. You need to fear the same judgment that these demons were fearing. The second, you put on Jesus Christ. The second you embrace him by faith, the second you surrender to his lordship completely, you have no judgment to fear, Christian friend. The final way in which Jesus demonstrated authority, so the first two ways were by his authority of teaching, authoritative judgment, and here now the final way in verses 25 through 28 that Jesus demonstrates his authority is authoritative power. These verses show the third reason why you and I should surrender to Jesus in our daily life on every level. Authoritative power. Let me read the verses for you, verses 25 through 28. But Jesus rebuked him, that is the demon-possessed man or the demon himself, and said, be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, listen to the power being demonstrated here, and the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him, just as Jesus proclaimed, as he commanded. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him? What do we have here? What we have here is authoritative power. Listen to how Paul describes this power. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them by or over them in him. 
So rulers and authorities in this verse in Colossians 2 refer to satanic forces, satanic beings. How did Jesus disarm the rulers and authorities? By his physical presence in the first century. That's how. God himself entered Satan's domain in human form and taught authoritatively. God himself, the second person of the Trinity, also demonstrated his authoritative judgment. He's God, he's judge, he can do so. And his authoritative power was also on display here. How did, did Jesus disarm rules and authority? By showing up as God, that's how. Mark's final point here is that Jesus' authority and his authoritative power completely dominated this demon. First, he silenced the demon. Second, he said, come out, and he did. Why did Jesus do this? I mean, the demon was actually speaking the truth. You're the Holy One of God. Why didn't Jesus stand back and say, hey, yeah, would you say that again, please, to these people who aren't convinced yet? Why did he shut him up? Why did he habitually and every single time shut up demonic announcement or promotion? Because he didn't want Satan and his demons promoting his ministry. All right, he didn't want people more confused about who he was. He required demons and Satan to stay out of it. Be quiet and come out. People were having a hard enough time embracing Christ, believing who he was. Add on to that, demons promoting him? No, thank you. Jesus' teaching, judgment and power have totally dominated the chaos maker, who was Satan. All of his demons, who were his armies. Jesus should be followed. Jesus should be worshipped. He should be surrendered to in our daily lives because he has demonstrated authority over every single influence that affects us every single day of our lives. Jesus has demonstrated authority over those things. Is there someone that you love that remains under the power of the enemy? Jesus can command that person to be still, and he, in a moment he can call them into his light whenever he wants. That is our prayer, isn't it, for our family and friends and neighbors who don't know Jesus? We pray that Jesus will have mercy on their souls. We ask that he will do for them what he did for us and what he did for this demon-possessed man. Dominate him and say, you are coming with me as he did his disciples up in verses 16 through 20. This is what we pray for. We don't pray that they'll have a clear understanding of the gospel. We want that, sure. We don't pray that they will finally, no. We pray that Jesus will call them to himself. Because if Jesus calls them, what happens? What happened to the four disciples up in 16 through 20? They came. No questions asked. They came. Are you praying that for your kids, for your grandkids, for your neighbors? Friends, we need to be discerning. 
We need to make sure that we're not buying into Satan's lies, who is the father of lies. We owe him no allegiance. He's been defeated by our savior, by our captain, by our king. We're in the right army, aren't we? We don't have to follow the philosophies of the enemy, which are running rampant in our society right now. We don't have to live in fear of Satan because he's been conquered. Jesus, our captain, conquered him 2,000 years ago, definitively. No questions. There's certainly skirmishes that remain, right? Like putting out a forest fire. The fire may be out, but there's still guys up in the mountains putting out little embers. That's our role in this battle. We're putting out hot embers. The battle's been won. The fire's out. Friends, we need to live in that victory won by our Savior. We need to follow him daily. We need to submit ourselves, surrender to his lordship on every level and follow him joyfully throughout life until the day we see him face to face. I pray that now you've heard Mark's presentation of the authority of Christ Jesus, that you will simply surrender to it. Not hold out anything. Not withhold a certain area of your life that is is your favorite sin area. Not, Not just keep certain things to yourself. No, that you will lay everything at the feet of Jesus. Surrender all to him. Surrender your family, your children, your job, your thought life, everything to Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come into your presence acknowledging your authority, but moving beyond acknowledgement, I want to, I want to pray, represent, speak for your people in this room. We surrender to you, Lord Jesus. We in this moment want to put aside all those distracting things of life all those sins that so easily entangle, we want to put them aside. We want to run with Christ. We want to be filled with Christ's spirit. We want to encourage other saints to do the same. We want to come together now, Lord, in unified submission to you so that you will use us, bless us, and that we will glorify you. Bring us joy, Lord, that you've promised you would bring to those who surrender and embrace you. I pray these things in the name of our great Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.